Our reading this evening is taken from Judges, chapter 3, verses 7 to 31. And that can be found on page 244 in the Church Bibles. That's Judges, chapter 3, verses 7 to 31. Othniel. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherahs. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel, so that he sold them into the hands of Cushan, Rushathaim, king of Aram, Naharim, to whom the Israelites were subject for eight years. But when they cried out to the Lord, he raised up for them a deliverer, Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, who saved them. The Spirit of the Lord came on him so that he became Israel's judge and went to war. The Lord gave Cushan Ruthaim, king of Aram, into the hands of Othniel, who overpowered him. So the land had peace for forty years, until Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. Ehud. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. Getting the Ammonites and the Amalekites to join him, Eglon came and attacked Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms. The Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. Again the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man the son of Gera, the Benjamite. The Israelites sent him with tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Ehud had made a double-edged sword about a cubit long, which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing. He presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was a very fat man. After Ehud had presented the tribute, he sent on their way those who had carried it. But on reaching the stone images near Gilgal, he himself went back to Eglon and said, Your Majesty, I have a secret message for you. The king said to his attendants, Leave us. And they all left. Ehud then approached him while he was sitting alone in the upper room of his palace and said, I have a message from God for you. As the king rose from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand, drew the sword from his right thigh and plunged it into the king's belly. Even the handle sank in after the blade and his bowels discharged. Ehud did not pull the sword out and the fat closed in over it. Then Ehud went out to the porch. He shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. After he had gone, the servants came and found the doors of the upper room locked. They said, he must be relieving himself in the inner room of the palace. They waited to the point of embarrassment, but when he did not open the doors of the room, they took a key and unlocked them. There they saw their lord fallen to the floor, dead. While they waited, Ehud got away. He passed by the stone images and escaped to Sirah. When he arrived there, he blew a trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites went down with him from the hills, with him leading them. Follow me, he ordered, for the Lord has given Moab, your enemy, into your hands. So they followed him down and took possession of the fords of the Jordan that led to Moab. 
They allowed no one to cross over. At that time, they struck down about 10,000 Moabites, all vigorous and strong, not one escaped. That day, Moab was made subject to Israel, and the land had peace for 80 years. Shamgar. After Ehud came Shamgar, son of Anath, who struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goad. He too saved Israel. This is God's word. A few nervous laughters as that was read. You can laugh, it's a funny story. We'll get to a lot of the details a little bit later on with Ehud's. Um, but it is here, I think, in part to humour us. Um, so we can laugh this evening at this fat man, Eglon, as he gets stabbed in the belly with a knife and then poos himself. Let's pray, and we'll make a start together. Father, thank you that all of your word is true and good for us. Thank you that all of your word points us towards the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we pray, Father, that you would help us, as we look at these verses, to marvel afresh upon him and what he has done for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. One place I enjoyed going to as a youngster was a, a swimming pool called Waterworld. Basically, it was an indoor water park, and the best flume, the best slide that there was, was called Space Bowl. Space Bowl, basically, you entered it at the top, and you went slightly downhill, and then you entered a massive bowl where you went round and round and round and round. Everyone who's been on that or something like that has tried the same thing. We've all tried to stop ourselves before you hit the middle. Once you hit the middle, you just drop into a deep body of water. We all try and stop ourselves but we can't. The inevitable happens. You hit the water. Most of the times I did it upside down. This term we're looking through the book of Judges, and last week we were given the introduction to the cycle that we're going to see as we make our way through this book. Do you remember it? The people serve idols. The people are oppressed by their enemies. The people are distressed and then they're delivered by a judge. That's the cycle we're going to see again and again. We're going to see it six times in detail, each time beginning with the words, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. On top of those six cycles, there's going to be six other judges too, some like Shamgar who just get one verse, meaning that 12 times in the book, the Lord is going to raise up a judge. He's going to raise up a rescuer going to provide a deliverer for his people. And yet it's going to become very clear that those deliverances, those rescues don't really work. This book, it contains more than just cycles. It contains a downhill spiral we saw last week. As we make our way through this book, we're following Israel as they go down that water slide, as they head round and round, down and down, they try and stop themselves but they can't. Not a good time for Israel. Now, I guess that most of us will know that the ultimate deliverer, the ultimate rescuer of God's people is Jesus Christ. And so as we go through this book, instead of making the judges the hero of the story, 
we need to let them point us to Jesus and God's rescue of us through him. Sometimes this book will do that negatively for us. It will show us the, the kind of rescue that we don't need. It'll be a case of seeing how wonderfully different Jesus is to the judges as we see their moral flaws. It'll be a case of seeing just how different God's rescue is. Sometimes this book will do it positively for us. For some of the stories, it's a case of seeing how similar Jesus is and how similar God's rescue of us is. And I think that's what we're going to see tonight as we look at Othniel, Ehud, and Shamgar. Let's look at the first cycle. You probably noticed it as it was read. Let's quickly go through it. Verse 7, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherahs. There's step one of the cycle. Do you see it? The people serve idols. They turn from the Lord and they turn towards these fertility gods and worship them. Verse 8, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel so that he sold them into the hands of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Aram Naharaim, to whom the Israelites were subject for eight years. There's step two. The people are oppressed. The Lord hands them over so that they're living under this oppressive rule for eight years. Verse nine. But when they cried out to the Lord, there's step three of the cycle. They are distressed. Remember, we thought about this last week. That's not necessarily that Israel are repenting of their sin, but more just that they're crying out in pain. But when they do, the, laws, the Lord raised up for them a deliverer. Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother who saved them. The Spirit of the Lord came on him so that he became Israel's judge and went to war. The Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Aram, into the hands of Othniel, who overpowered him. There's step four. The people are delivered. Notice how the tables are reversed. Just as the Lord had sold Israel, just as the Lord had handed them over, just as he'd given them up, well, now the opposite happens. The Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim into the hands of Othniel. And so there's peace for 40 years. The cycle is very clear, isn't it? One commentator talking about these verses, he describes it as like a card game. I mean, you know, you're trying to explain a new game to someone, and, and it's clear that you're just not very good at giving out instructions, and they're just not very good at understanding instructions. And so what do you do? You, will, you, you deal out the cards, and everybody shows their cards, and so you show them how the game works. You show them what they could play, you show them what would be good to play, what wouldn't be good to play. And the commentator goes on to say that the Othniel cycle is... It's just an initial example of the process that we've already had in chapter 2. I think that's helpful, but only to an extent. I mean, is that it? Are these verses just a second go round the cycle with a few more details this time for the slower learners amongst us? I don't think that that's all that is going on here. We've already seen in the book of Judges that the order that things are written in is very significant. Think back to chapter 1. The order that the tribes were mentioned in takes us from south to north. That order also takes us through from the best tribes up to the worst tribes. The best tribes were the ones in the south, 
and progressively they get worse as they head north. As we make our way through the stories of the judges, we're going to see that same pattern. Remember, Judges isn't just a load of cycles. It's a downwards spiral. Down and down it goes. The Israelites get worse. The oppression gets worse. And most notably, the judges get worse. This is the high point of the book. Let's enjoy it whilst we're there. This is the high point. Othniel himself is the best judge. Back in chapter 1, we saw him that he was related to Caleb. That's a good relation to have in the Bible. He's part of the best tribe, Judah. In many of the other stories, there are serious question marks over the morals and the actions of the judges, but no such comment here. It's also a wonderful rescue. Cushan Rishathaim is a big deal. He's the most powerful enemy in the book. His name means Cushan of double wickedness. And yet when he comes up against Othniel, he loses, and the land has peace. These verses are more than just another example of the cycle. They're here to set the ideal pattern. As we make our way through this book, it'll be worth keeping this one in mind so that we can compare how things are going, compare the other judges with Othniel, compare the results of the other judges' actions compared to the result of the actions of Othniels. As we make our way through the other cycles, it'll be worth checking whether they contain all the steps that this one does. Hint, they don't. Look out for it as we make our way through. And yet, even though this is the best cycle, even though Othniel may be the obvious choice, we are to notice, I think, Throughout these verses, the emphasis on the Lord. Did you notice it as it was read? Who's the rebellion against? The Lord. The retribution, that comes from the Lord. The rescue comes from the Lord. He's the one who raises up the deliverer. It is the spirit of the Lord who comes upon Othniel. It is the Lord who gave Othniel, who gave this king into the hands of Othniel. This is the best cycle. This sets up the pattern. But it is clear that it all happens only because of the Lord's. He is the only one who can rescue and save his people. As we've just been singing, the Lord alone can rescue. The Lord alone can rescue. We need to remember that, don't we? We might have had godly parents, godly church leaders, godly friends who told us about Jesus. But however godly they were, however good they are at teaching the Bible, it is the Lord who saved us. We need to remember that in our evangelism. It is not us who saves people. It is the Lord. I think that's wonderfully reassuring. It is the Lord who saves. Back to the passage and you can see that it all starts to go wrong again. The land has peace for 40 years, but it doesn't last. Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. The cycle each time starts with Israel did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and that it starts again just after the judge dies. That's the big problem. The judges don't live forever. The judge 
dies. And again, verse 12, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Round we go for the second time. Because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. Getting the Ammonites and the Amalekites to join him, Eglon came and attacked Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms. The Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. Stage one and stage two. They turn away from the lords, and they are oppressed by Eglon. He captures the city of Palms. That's not a good thing. That's Jericho. The first city that they take on conquest has gone. And they were subject to him, note, for slightly longer this time, 18 years rather than eight. Again, they cry out to the Lord, and he gives them this deliverer, Ehud. And this is the story that we are meant to laugh at. Don't feel nervous about laughing at it. Whether we enjoy toilet humor or not, we are meant to laugh as we make our way through these events. Humor is, is used throughout this passage. God uses it to poke fun at his enemy. As God uses Ehud to completely shame and defeat this enemy. It starts with his name, the name Eglon looks very similar to a couple of other words in the original language. The first of these is the word that means baby bull. And the second is the word that means round or rotund. So if, if you're thinking about potential baby names in the future, might I suggest you take Eglon off that list? Here's our offspring, Eglon. Oh, what does his name mean? We're not too sure, but something like fat baby bull. Like, probably not the best name that you want to give a child. But for Eglon, this name is perfect. It fits his size. A group of Israelites, which include Eglon, is sent with a tribute to this king, this sort of tax that they would have paid. This tax, which most people think is probably made up of agricultural produce. And so the day that this arrives at the palace is a very happy day for Eglon indeed. He likes his food. We're told in 17, he's a very fat man. He's a unit, which, if you think about it, is... It's probably not the greatest quality for a warrior. I mean, if you're looking for a leader of an army, you don't want the biggest person in the land to be leading it. But he is. Um, Ehud and the rest of the Israelites leave Eglon to enjoy his food. They return homewards, but then Ehud turns back around to go back to Eglon. And he tells Eglon, I've got this secret message for you. It's a bit of a play on words. Message could also mean thing, it could mean experience. I mean, we know what's about to happen, right? We know Ehud means the sword that he's hidden in his trousers. Eglon doesn't, he falls for it hook, line, and sinker, and so he sends his men away for, so that they can have a private conversation. I've got a message from God for you, it sounds intriguing. Eglon pulls himself to his feet, probably quite the effort given his size, but it also now means that Ehud has a massive target to aim at. And the action slows right down, doesn't it? The, the author really sort of gives us the details in full. Left hand, he goes to his right leg, he pulls out the sword and plunges it into the belly. Even the handle sank in after the blade. Here's the best part for me. Here's, <laughs> His bowels discharged. <laughs> Sound effects required. 
Ehud does not pull the sword out and the fat closed in over it. Like, you can imagine Ehud thinking, bother, I've got to get my hand out quickly or I'm going to lose my arm. The humor continues. We get this scene with the servants. They notice that the, the doors are locked, engaged, has appeared. And so with that and the smell that's starting to sort of come from the room, well, they think, well, he must be relieving himself in the inner room of the palace. He's on the loo. A little bit more time passes by. Do you think he's all right? I mean, he's been in there for quite a while. Do you think we ought to check up on him? Are you mad? Do you remember what happened last time someone walked in on Eglon in the bathroom? He's fine. Um, He keeps a book in the bathroom anyway, so he's probably just reading that to pass the time. Let's give him a little longer. But then it starts to get really embarrassing. I mean, there's a long time to be on the lee, and then there's a really long time. They knock, no answer, and so they find the spare key, they open the door, and they hold their breath as they go in. Imagine, right, I mean, it really stinks by now. But all they see is their lords fallen to the floor, dead. Now, in the time that these servants have been dilly-dallying around, Ehud has managed to escape. Um, He's passed by the stone images. He blows the trumpet in order to gather the troops. Very tactically, they take over the fords of the river Jordan so that all the Moabites who are in Israel have to pass by them to leave. And they strike them down, 10,000. 10,000 who are vigorous and strong. Not one of them escaped. And the conclusion is wonderful for Israel. Look at verse 30 with me, please. That day Moab was made subject to Israel, and the land had peace for 80 years. Now, of course, we might have thoughts about Ehud's decisions. His actions are potentially questionable. It's interesting that the Lord doesn't get a mention between verses 15 and 28. But with the other judges, there are sort of more comments on their moral flaws. And just notice how Ehud is described back in verse 15. Not described as a murderer or a liar, but described as a deliverer. This story is all about deliverance and rescue. Two things that I want to point out about this rescue. The first I hope is clear. It is amusing. I hope that you see the funny side of this story. I think we're meant to. At the start of the story, Eglon looks really strong. He's referred to as the king of Moab numerous times. He's sensible sensible politically. He gathers the Ammonites and the Amalekites. He takes possession of the land. He even gets Jericho. But as you make your way through the story, he's then only referred to as he and as their lords, not the lords, theirs. And at the end, if I can put it like this, it's nothing more than a pile of fat and feces. We are meant to see the funny sides. I like to imagine the Israelites gathering around the fire pit over the years to come. Ehud, Ehud, come and tell us again how about you defeated King Eglon, giggling away at this man who was so fat that a sword could be hidden in his belly. 
Now, of course, the humor does actually serve a double point. There is a bit of a sting in the tail. As Israel laughs at this story, they're also probably then remembering that these were the guys that they were subject to. For 18 years, Israel were lower than Eglon. It's not a great thing to be, is it? The humor reveals, I think, in part, just how foolish were Israel are becoming in just becoming like their enemies. It shows the foolishness of Israel in the rest of the book. They don't learn from these mistakes. They continue to do evil. Sadly, ironic to be under this king who can be defeated so easily. We'll come back to that later on in the term, I'm sure. But for tonight, enjoy the humor of the rescue. Enjoy the embarrassment of Eglon. God can wipe out this king so easily. Can humiliate and shame and defeat him. And so therefore also enjoy God's embarrassment of Satan. Satan thinks that he's so powerful... And yet, look at what God can do with his enemies. How does the Lord respond in Psalm 2? He laughs at rebellion against him. Not because it's funny, but just because it's so foolish. Paul writes to the Colossians, and he says this. He says, Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them. God deals with his enemies. Of course, Satan is real. We shouldn't doubt that. Of course, he has power. But as we see the, the wonder and the, the humor of this rescue in Judges, delight in the rescue that God has achieved for us. He's humiliated Satan, disarmed the powers and authorities, public spectacle, triumphed over them. an amusing rescue. And as we head to a close, I also want to note that this is a surprising rescue. The name Ehud means where is the splendor? Not exactly going to instill confidence in Israel, is it? Where is the splendor? He's going to help us out. Not the inspirational name that we'd be looking for if we were looking for a leader. Surprising that he would bring such a deliverance. We're told that he comes from the tribe of Benjamin. That's not a positive statement, if you know the book of Judges. Surprising that he would bring such a deliverance. And thirdly, notice that we're told that he is left-handed. It could mean that he has a withered right hand, ergo he looks weak. But also, let's think about this. Back then, there were no such thing as metal detectors. And so when the Israelites turned up with the tribute, Eglon's men would have checked for weapons. And they would have checked everybody's left sides. Because as a right-handed person, you keep your weapon there because it's easy to access. Easy to get at. Ehud shows his left side no weapon. He's not going to put it there because he's left-handed. Ehud is uniquely suited to this job. Because he was left-handed, he could get in undetected. 
Eglon looks at him, and let's, if he had a withered hand, well, he probably thinks, well, he can't do any damage. But also, he's not got a weapon. He can't do any damage. Presumably, that's why he sends his men away. Otherwise, it's a very foolish thing to do. You're one-to-one with your enemy without any protection. Presumably, he thinks, this guy, Ehud, is weak and useless. He can't do anything. And so he's taken by complete surprise when Ehud reaches with his left hand to his right thigh and pulls out the sword. It's a very surprising rescue. And I think that's the point with Shamgar too. Shamgar, who probably by his name isn't even an Israelite. And even God uses him. He uses him to strike down 600 Philistines and his only weapon is effectively a stick with a nail poking out the end. Both surprising rescues. Neither person looks important. Neither rescue looks powerful. Both rescues look unlikely and unexpected. And yet they work. It's the same with Jesus. That verse in Colossians from earlier again, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them, How? By the cross is how Paul finishes that sentence. That's not the way that the world expects it, is it? It's not the way that you and I might expect it. We might think, well, Jesus would come on the scene and defeat Satan and the powers with a really powerful method. And yet he doesn't. When looking for salvation and deliverance, very few think to look down at a baby born in a trough. When looking for rescue, very few think to look up to a man dying on a cross. Perhaps you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, and perhaps you wouldn't call yourself a Christian because you think, well, the cross just looks weak and foolish. It does. It does look weak and foolish. It's a surprising way for God to defeat Satan. It's a very surprising way for God to save people. And yet, it is exactly how God saves people. The cross of Jesus is exactly how God rescues and delivers and saves his people. In a very surprising way, but ultimately a very glorious way. As he goes for you and me, So that we can enjoy not just 40 years of peace, not just 80 years of peace, but an eternity of peace. It's a surprising rescue, and yet a wonderful rescue, as God defeats his enemy, Satan, and wins salvation and deliverance for us. A few moments to gather our thoughts, and then we'll pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your extreme kindness and patience with your people. 
that even though they did evil and were then saved and then did evil and were then saved, and we'll see that carry on through this book, thank you that you were kind in raising up deliverers. And thank you ultimately, Father, for raising up the Lord Jesus Christ to deliver us. Thank you, Father, that you alone are the Lord. You are alone are the one who can save. And we pray, Father, that this passage would give us extra confidence that you are the Lord who does that, even by surprising means. Help us to keep believing and trusting that it is the weak and foolish-looking death of the Lord Jesus, the surprising defeat of Satan, that that is exactly what we need in order to have true deliverance and eternal peace. Thank you for pointing us to him in these verses, and we pray that you would help us to continue to worship and praise him for the rest of this evening and indeed this week. Amen.